Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, welcome black, welcome black, welcome black, welcome black, black again, black like I never left, black as always, black AF. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Black Arm of the Law. I am your host, the one and only Carl Anthony Payne II. That is my full government name for those of you who are trying to stalk me. Today's guest, like all other guests, are super, super special. Today's guest is super, super special. He hails from Montgomery, Alabama. He was born there, bred there, and he was raised there. He was born at Alabama St. Jude Hospital, which happens to be a historic landmark, which happens to be the last resting stop of the one, the only, late, great Dr. Martin Luther King. He served 20 years and seven months of service in the FBI, conducting, supervising, and managing traditional and sophisticated criminal and national security slash terrorism investigations. He served in the Air Force, where he was stationed at Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona. He was also stationed over in South Korea. I mean, man's been around the world and I, 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 his resume goes on and on and on. He's, he's served on different task force. Very, very excited. Very excited to welcome to today's show. None other. Alabama born and bred, Mr. Willie Knight. Now, where, where are you living right now? Where are you, where are you now? I'm over in the uh, Washington, D.C. metro area over by uh, Oxon Hill. I don't know if you're familiar with that region. I'm so familiar with that area. I've had, I grew up over there partially. Um, yeah, my grandmother stayed in Fort Washington. Oh, and, okay. Um, yeah, okay. I'm down to yeah. Growing up, summers and, you know, different times of my life, having friends in Oxon Hill, having friends in Bowie, having friends all over over the area, you know, learning learning what PG meant for PG County. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You spot on. Okay. And then um, ended up actually attending Howard University. So. Right. That's right. from being out there all the time. So, you know, and then my aunt went to Howard. My sister used to go to the summer program there for uh, kids and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, it just became like my second home. Absolutely. I didn't stay on campus. I stayed at my other grandmother's house right there on Georgia Avenue. So, right. You know, okay. <laughs> okay. You were there in the area. Okay. Mm-hmm. DC was a, was a good time back in and the day. When were you out, th- out here? I was there... 88, 89, telling my age today. Right. That's okay. You're still a young guy. It's all right. Yeah, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but it was it was definitely, uh, it was definitely, and I was there obviously way, you know, all the years before that, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that was, that was, those were my college years, 87, 88, 80, you know, around that time. But it was, uh, I just remember it being such a fun place to be. Absolutely. Such a great Absolutely. place to be. Learning about go-go. Go go music, you know, yeah. rare essence. Yeah. Yes. Hitting up spots like yes. uh, uh you know, the Ibex, 
It was yeah. a good time. No All right, let's jump into you though, uh, Mr. Knight. So you're primarily from there, or is that just, that just where you ended up? Uh, pretty much where I ended up. I'm an Alabama okay. boy. Bama, Bama yeah. boy. Right, right. Now, how long, I should say, at what point in your, what stage in your life did you end up out there? Like majority of the time, like how much time have you spent there in D.C. area? Yeah, I, yeah I've been out in D.C. now, Carl, uh, since uh, 2004. So I've been here like 17 years now. I came out here on assignment with the FBI in D.C. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Don. A couple of years later, and I've been here ever since. Well, look, look, man, you know, I'm not too far off. I was born in South Carolina myself. So, oh, right. you know, small, small, small town in South Carolina. So, you oh, know, it's okay. just always amazing when I hear other stories about uh, cats who are from these small towns who go out and see the world and have these crazy adventures, man. It's, it's, right. always, right. it's always a thing, you know, and then you become the local hero, the local town hero. Everyone wants to, you know, you know, give you a parade or try to figure out how they can do it too. But it's a great example to set in my opinion, mm-hmm. to say, to say, Hey man, I, you know, we, we can all, you know, achieve these things and, and, you know, the same amount of success or even just have these adventures yourself, you know, just exactly. Now I do understand you grew up in Alabama uh, and you also attended the same schools, or, or at least you were also born at the hospital, right? Which ended up being the resting place for Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Is that correct? That is correct. Tell me about what was it like growing up in Alabama for you? Well, you know, I tell you, for me, Carl, uh, it was good because, uh, you know, that, that was at the, that was at the, uh, probably the middle part and moved toward the end of the civil rights movement. And everything mm-hmm. was pretty much starting to, you know, integrate. So, you know, my elementary school was integrated. My junior high school was integrated. My high school was integrated. You know, it wasn't until I went to Alabama State, I went to an all-black university, that it was, you know, it was uh, segregated. So so I was I was fortunate. I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate. I reaped, you're looking at a gentleman that has reaped the benefits of that of that struggle. Let me let me ask you a question, because it's interesting that you said at the end of the civil rights movement and that you said it was a, a good thing. Mm-hmm. So two questions, a two part question. Mm-hmm. What makes you say that it was a good thing? Like what what was it? The climate for me it was the opportunity. All of the older people saying, you know, you can you can go farther than what we did. You know, you can do better. And, you know, it was it was ingrained in me at an early age to go to college because the older the older generation who had been in the struggle couldn't couldn't go you know they didn't have those opportunities and they and they always said you know boy you know be somebody don't be out here in these streets go to you know go to college you know get a degree you be somebody one day and that's what was ingrained in me at an early age and i try to take full advantage of it to the, to the extent possible did you know then what field uh, you were going to go into or what you thought your career might be? Because I, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, Willie, growing up, obviously, we were a lot of things that our parents were that was in, instilled in them. Mm-hmm. They pressed upon us, whether it was the fear of God, culturally, you know, the foods, everything. So mm-hmm. even including, you know, you must go to college, you must work hard to get ahead and this, that and the other, because also that's how the system was so-called set up at that right. time as well, was that if you didn't have this, you you weren't afforded these opportunities. What do you think the difference is then till now? Or what do you do you still believe that? Because I have my own opinion with regards to college and obviously with regards to depending on what you might want to do or become. What is your opinion on that? I still believe that uh, if you want to achieve some level of success, you absolutely must have some collegiate credentials behind you. People will never give you the opportunity that you 
you deserve if you don't have it. It's a stepping stone. It's a requirement for success. And I don't think the game has changed at all now from back then. It's just that the attitudes, you know, of the general, of the individuals coming up now, you know, the, you know, the young black boys and the young black girls, you see a, you see a diverse, you know, perspective now on college. You see now, unlike back when I was coming up, you know, boys, guys, you know, were like beating the college doors down. And, and now you see diverse. It's the, it's the young, young black girls now beating the college doors down and the young boys are doing, you know, they rather go to, you know, truck driving school and be a truck driver or drive Uber or what have you. Uh, but education, you know, to get in the game, you got you have to have uh, education to make yourself uh, competitive. You have to have education. And I think that today the difference is, is that the perspective has uh, transferred. I mean, the, 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 the educational bug and the higher and at the higher level, for some reason, has transformed from it's migrated from the men, black men. To black women, and uh, and and that's why we see the black women, you know, that are 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 reaching, I mean, historical levels of success in every, you know, in every uh, discipline because you know they are they are true to the game, and the game is education. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, you know, uh, detailed. It doesn't have to be specific to what you want to do in life, but. You got to have an education, you know, like for with me, uh, you know, I got a degree in computer information system, computer science. I, I didn't want to play with computers. You know, I uh, I wanted to go to college and get a degree, go into the military and, uh, you know, be, you know, and have a successful military career. But at the time, computer science was it wasn't what that that was the name of the that was the name of the game. So, you know, so I. You know, I got in the race, you know, I got in the game, you know, and I played ball. And, uh, you know, the old saying, you know, you you, uh, you cooperate, you graduate, you know. So I cooperated with the program and I graduated and I used that as my stepping stone. And, you know, uh, the last time I coded was in college. And do, do I like to code? No, sir. I like to, you know, do other things. I'm a police guy. I, I like security. I like, you know, investigating. That's that's my, you know, that's my, my calling. But my point is, you know, education is the key. Education is the key to to propel you to that next level. And then it's up to you then to take advantage of that next level, you know, from, from that standpoint. So uh, the difference today as uh, from, you know, yesteryears is uh, you, you just see a falling away uh, in the attitudes of young black men and in the necessity of education more so and then and, and then conversely you see a uh, a gravitation of education you know by the young black women and in case in point and i love uh talking to young black boys and young black women at the same time and i'll and i'll ask a young black girl say she's eight nine years old i said uh young lady what do you what do you want to be when you grow up oh i want to be a doctor i want to be a pediatrician pediatrician she didn't say baby doctor she said pediatrician eight nine year old kid that's a young black kid, same age, or maybe a little bit older. What do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a basketball player. You know, I want to be a baseball player. Sir, son, 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 let me, t- let me talk to you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's good to play basketball. It's good to play baseball. It's good to play, you know, football. But you got to get your education first because if you, you know the percentage of success in getting into the professional league in sports, you know, is astronomical, you know. And uh, so uh, – uh, it's so it's the attitude, you know, the difference uh, right now, from what I could tell, from you know, from a micro perspective, in its own lines of black men and black girls and their perspective on you know need for education as a uh, 
you know, as a measure of their, you know, success in life. Talk to me about what made you want to uh, go into law enforcement. Right. Well, you know, uh, and, and, and in fact, that's a very good uh, segue. In uh, speaking, what we're talking about already, you know, I like I said, I uh, my exposure to the civil rights uh, movement, you know, was at you know at the best times. I could see the wrong that had been done. I could see pain and the suffering in the faces of black men and women and senior citizens, how they struggled to to be protected, provided for. And uh, I remember one day I was walking. I was I might have been nine, eight, nine years old, right? And this uh, community drunk was walking. He was stumbling down the street, you know, in the hood. And this cop pulled up, two of them in the car, and they'll forget it. They pulled up next to him, and they, you know, they tirated him on, why are you out here drunk? You know, this, you know, it's it's in the middle of the day. Come here, boy. You know, I remember this, this, this clear we're talking now. And they said, stick your head in the window. Stick your head in this window, right? And so, of course, you know, back in those days, you know, you know, when the, when the policeman, you know, said something, you know, you you had to do it. And they he put he stuck his head in the window and the cop rolled the window up on his on his on his head, on his neck. And then it started gradually taking off. That did it. That memory is is burned in my mind it, until the day I die. And that I was about eight years old. I'll never forget it. You know, me and my friend, we were out, you know, we, we were playing stick horses in Indian. You know, how you be riding, you know, horses with the broomstick, you know, kids. I never forget that. I, that stopped me in my tracks. And I would never forget that. I don't know what I don't know what happened the rest of that day, but I remember that incident. And I just, you know, I need, you know, who's protecting black people from that? And that, you know, although that's, you know, pretty, you know, germane and, you know, pretty, you know, uh, specific it uh, to the time it it had a lasting impact on my mind as far as equality from the law enforcement system and I began to hear about being an FBI agent and I began to hear about being uh, a soldier and you know and being somebody and protecting people and and doing what's right and you know going after bad guys I, and I would hear about how uh, blacks were being hung. And in the South, and nothing was happening. The people could get away with it. I, I remember those things. I remember those things. I remember uh, one of my assignments uh, just before I came out here. I was in Memphis, and Memphis butts uh, Mississippi. And uh, a lot of the guys that I was working with lived in Mississippi. And I was living over in Memphis, and they said, Willie, uh, the houses in Mississippi is a whole lot cheaper than in, in Memphis and Tennessee. Come on over to Mississippi. I said, Let me tell you guys something. I don't care where I'm at. I'll never live in Mississippi. He said, why? Because when I was a little boy, and I remember, and I could, you hit me in the head with a sludge hammer. You didn't go to Mississippi. In, in Mississippi, black men were being hung. And that's exactly what was happening. They were hanging black men in Mississippi for even, you know, just, if you thought you were somebody, and if you accidentally looked at a white woman, you won't get hung. And I used to hear about, you know, older people talking about, oh, they hung another one. Did you see, did you hear about the guy, they found one down in the, at the creek? swinging but nothing was happening you know but then you hear you hear about you know uh a black kid you know picks up a candy bar you know out of out of 7-eleven and there's 15 cars down there and 15 cars at his house you know they're prosecuting the blacks for stealing a candy bar a sneaker bar right because the guy is hungry but a black man got hung i remember these things carl a black man lost his life nothing said nothing done 
But really, what's different today? That's the sad part. What's different today? And in my opinion, nothing, nothing, nothing is different because this was community verse, right? Like this was right. This was the uh, the game telephone when you would, you know, you would hear a story across town, you know, and then or you would get on the phone and call you or this was water cooler talk, church talk, you know, but now right. we actually have it on film <laughs> over and over and over again. My two cents on on that is it's our that's our fault. I, I can't we have to take responsibility for that. You know why? Because it reflects back and, and, and I and I mean I'm talking about us. Guys like me, Don, you and all and everybody that know that that, that have gone on, you know, and have achieved some level of success. We didn't do a good mm-hmm. job at uniting and take care of each other politically. And that goes back to your question about, you know, not being able to, uh, we're not putting the right people in these political positions. And that's, and that's the heart of the matter right there, because we don't have, we don't have the political power. Actually, it's actually starting to get better. We don't have the political might to put terror mm-hmm. in the minds of these, you know, racist politicians to, to make them stand up and do right, act right, mm-hmm. because because we lack that political might. And I think mm-hmm. once we really and, and, and we are getting we are moving toward that direction. But until we become politically strong, right. I mean, truly politically strong, then Carl is going to continue to occur. The things that we see in starting to revert back to the Jim Crow years are going to continue to occur. And and I mean, from the standpoint of black men becoming activists, black men leading the fight. And Lord knows, I know, I think the black women are doing a wonderful job, mm-hmm. but it's absent the black men, you know, the, the, the male role models, the male power in this struggle. And I think it's incumbent upon us to do, uh, I mean, you know, to be that, you know, to be that, uh, to be that tip of the spear out front, to be that, uh, you know, that lanyard, to be that, you know, that shining light to say, okay, this is the path we're going and this is the things that we have to get done and this is what we got to do. We've got to galvanize our young men to be men. We got to galvanize our young men to be forward thinkers. Mm-hmm. We got to galvanize our young men, you know, to reprogram them to, you know, to, 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 to believe in themselves, you know, program them to, you know, to, uh, you know, achieve, you know, you, you know, your, your, your destiny, you know, and that, you know, you, you didn't, come in this world, you know, without a purpose, you know, there's a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you in this world, you know, achieve, you know, achieve your destiny, you know, understand what your destiny is and, 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 and go after it. And, and, uh, and I think that it's up to us to try to forge that, Carl. And I think, and it's all based on the, the, the political unity of our community to achieve you know, the, the, the short term and long term objective to, you know, to make things truly better, truly better. You know, Black Lives Matter is a wonderful movement and that's exactly what we need. And, and, and you know, and that's, you know, and that's quintessential, you know, civil rights movement. As black men, we need to really step it up. You know, we need to step up our game. We, we need to and on all levels. I agree. I concur. So we have to uh, have a call to action exactly. and we have to uh, unite so we can so we can galvanize. Um, man, this is good talk. This Absolutely. is good talk. Um, talk to me a little bit about 
I mean, your resume, first of all, is so impressive. It's so extensive and it's so interesting. I mean, I have a million questions and I'm sure you have some great stories. So without being too long winded, I want to get into a couple of those stories. You worked in a department or for a a brand that um, talked about Mm contingency plans for war. Is that that correct? From my war preparation perspective in the military, we look the military, uh, you know, the Pentagon looks, you know, 20, 30 years down downstream. Right. And, uh, and I could tell you, uh, we have we know who our enemies are. We, we know who our allies are and we anticipate bad things happening. So from the perspective of uh, my involvement, uh, it was pretty interesting. Very interesting. I, uh, I said, wow, sometimes I had to pinch myself where we we basically played war games. We played war games, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years out. OK, if this if this happens now, if this happens what what is our response? And we build those models. We were building current day plans to reach to meet and mitigate future wartime contingencies. And so, and in, in terms of what those you know what those specifics are, I was Air Force. So in the Air Force, you know, we have uh, aircrafts, and we have you know we have fighter aircrafts, we have bombers, we have surveillance planes, we have a a, a whole dichotomy of of, of weapon trees, right? Platforms. And so based on that, based on the threat, right? Uh, say 15, 20 years from now, we know that those weapon systems need to modernize and they need to modernize for various reasons like avionics, computer, you know, advancements, personnel specialties and capabilities. And uh, so we take all of those factors, right? And we say, okay, for us to meet this particular threat and it was regionalized right to meet this particular threat in this region we you know they we need to have in place x number of fighters x number of bombers x number of transport planes x numbers of of support people and uh we had a formula it, it was an spa spaces per aircraft for, for us air force so for every for every Fighter, say for example, you had a you have a frontline fighter that now is an F twenty two, which is a which is a all weather, all terrain fighter. It'll fight long range, short range, close combat, you know, air to air, air to land. Uh, it'll do what you need it to do. That aircraft, say for example, for that for that aircraft to fly one mission, it requires uh, thirty individuals to to make sure that that mission goes perfectly. That's from that's from the maintainers on the on the ground, the guys who's pulling the jet fuel in, the guys who's doing the avionics, the guys who's doing the hydraulics, the guys who's doing all of the uh, computer equipment, and uh, and then you look at the individuals who needs to you know man that plane, the pilots, the co-pilot, the the navigator, you know, and uh, the load master, and everyone associated with that. We basically built that that support package to ensure that that one aircraft is sufficiently manned. And it's sufficiently capable of doing the job that we needed to do, not just right now, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So so my job was basically to make sure that we had the right technical experts associated, identified and associated with a weapon system and make sure that that weapon system functioned to its fullest capability. It could be not just uh, an aircraft, but it could be satellites. It could be our ground launch missile system. So every system has a human element to it. And we made sure that we identified, you know, the right types of 
of experts, subject matter experts, to, to make sure that, you know, that, that particular weapon system functions to its fullest capable capability as, you know, as was required by, you know, um, by the uh, Pentagon standards. So it was pretty interesting. It says here you have a bunch of medals for uh, exceptional service. That's awesome. Now, now, was there anything in particular uh, or one that stands out to you that, that means something? My father served mm-hmm. in the uh, armed services as well. He was in the Air Force. And, uh, you know, I remember him telling me, you know, son, if you ever want to join a branch of the armed services, Air Force is definitely where you want to be. You know, and I, and, I, and I remember, you know, wanting to be just like my dad. And I remember for Halloween one time, I uh, I had his uniform on. Wow. And I, I lost, like, one of his medals. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed. I'm going to die. He's going to be so upset. I was just, like, distraught. And I was telling, I didn't know. I was like, Mom, please, you got to help me. You kill me. She's like, Mom, when he comes home, he's going to, you know. <laughs> and he's going to kill me. And I'll never forget this. I was like, I was like, hey, Dad, um, you know, of course, I was scared to death. And I remember telling him and he was like, it's all right. No big deal. And I was so shocked by his reaction because he had been, you know, I mean, all my punishments were straight military punishments. You know what I mean? Like this hardcore for no reason. Like I could do the littlest thing and he would just have me you know, peeling potatoes forever. He would have me like, you know, I could make a mistake on my homework and then I had to do it all over again. Like just crazy nonsense, right? So of course I was expecting the worst. And he was like, son, let me tell you something. He said, these medals don't mean a thing. He's like, based on what they ask of you and what you give and what they take from you. He was like, this is nothing. And this is, this is, could never be enough. He was like, so it doesn't mean anything. And I was just like, but I, I always remember that, and it stuck with me, you know. And of course, as you grow and live and learn, right. you know, it, it beca- the understanding of that became more and more, and the understanding of him. So, but in your case, were there any that stand out that mean something to you? My my response is pretty much like the father, and that being in the Air Force, you know, we you know we're not out climbing mountains and charging eels. You know, the things that we do is thousands of miles away and it's, you know, stuff you can never talk about, never, you know, never, you know, never mention, you know, and, and you know, inside of a 25, 30 year span because of the classification of the nature. But, but I, I can tell you, uh, you know, there, there were, you know, there were, you know, some interesting things, but it was pretty much a group, you know, as a group matter, you know, uh, group mission, uh, that, you know, that, uh, you know, I was really uh, fortunate to be a part of, and you know, we were able to get things done. And as a result, you know, we got you know medals for it. And you know, uh, from the standpoint of like uh, like all the Murphy kind of thing, you know, now I, I'm I'm devoid of that. My you know my 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 accomplishments all came you know from a unit, groups, you know, team, you know, contributions where we work together, you know, on certain assignments and uh, and and. You know, got things done at a level that uh, was, you know, where we, you know, garnered some praise and garnered, you know, you know, some recognition. So it was uh, for me, uh, garden variety, hard work though, but garden variety stuff. Interesting enough, though, my greatest accomplishment wasn't in the military, Carl. My greatest accomplishment that I that I did receive a medal from was in the FBI, and you know, 
Talk to me about that. Well, a real short story. And, uh, you know, this, you know, and you see over my right shoulder, uh, and my SWAT, my, my SWAT stuff. In the FBI, uh, before I came to Washington, D.C., uh, and I was assigned to the office and, uh, down, you know, then down, you know, which is, we, we covered the. So drugs is a, you know, name the game and, uh, drug trafficking organization coming, you know, coming down, coming down from South America and Central America into, into the. Any day at work, any, you know, you didn't have a normal day at work. And, and I loved it so much, man. I tell you, I was like a kid in the candy store. And this one story, and I can give you five. This one particular story, it was a Friday afternoon and everybody's ready to go home and, you know, and uh, get to start drinking or, you know, get with the ladies and doing your, you know, doing your off-duty stuff that you ain't supposed to talk about. And uh, one of my partners said, uh, hey, uh, hey, Willie, uh, can you guys, can you help me out? I got, I got this meeting, right, source meeting, and it's routine, it's nothing bad, I just need cover. Our protocol was you never went out on a meeting alone, you always had cover. And in this case, it was a source meeting with uh, some very bad guys, and it, it was a, it was an ongoing operation, and uh, unbeknownst to me and four or five other agents who were supporting this lead agent, he had been doing some underhanded stuff with the with their source, and the source was uh, misleading the uh, the drug trafficking organization head, and, he, and they found out about it. We we were not privy to the inside some of the internal communications between the lead agent and and informant, and uh, we were just basically covering the agents, you know, six in that meeting, and it was a normal meeting uh, at a bar, you know, with a lot of naked women around, and uh, the source met the individuals from this drug trafficking organization outside the bar. And it, this was a normal meeting. It was supposed to be a normal meeting where they meet, you know, they shake hands, you know, they go inside, they have some beers and have, you know, they, you know, play with the women and then they, you know, they, they do their business and they move on. Well, as soon as the bad guys pulled up, they kidnapped the source. They kidnapped him at gunpoint because they knew the source had, they, they, you know, this was the they weren't huh? supposed to do. And it got down, it got back to the guys in the, uh, down in, uh, in the email. And they said, you know what? We want to cut our losses, you know, take them out. And they, they came down after they sent with his main contact. They had a, a kill team, a hit team that was out, you know, that came along with the bad guys. And unbeknown to the source and unbeknown to the agent that uh, they had a hit out for this guy. So they kidnapped him at gunpoint and they were going to kill him right there. But they decided not to kill him right there because there was too many witnesses. And as a result, we had to rescue him very quickly. It's a very congested town. And, you know, we had to act very quickly. And that put me, actually, I did an OJ, actually. I, did, I, I actually did an OJ jumping over cars to get to the, ex, to, get to the exit before they could get out the exit. And I'm, and I'm, I'm strapped on my tactical belt with my 45 and my, my long gun slinging on my arm. I'm running as I'm, as I'm putting step on because we're all just sitting back in our cars, you know, eating, eating potato chips and drinking sodas and, you know, and just waiting for this meeting. Because when you, when you have a meeting like that, you have a primary, the case agent who, who manages that source, he, he has to maintain visual on that so basically, somebody was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> exactly. They saw a gun, and and the guy just came out. I mean, you know, they pulled up. They came out with guns, guns drawn, and it was so clear. It, it was clear. You could see that it, it was, you know, it was a kidnapping. And you know, he was wired up. And then, you know, when, when we when we played the when we played the the tape back, you know, it was clear that there he is, there he is. Pull up, you know, grab him, grab him. And you know, the guy saying, "Kill him now!" And the guy said, "No, no, no, don't shoot him now. Too many people around. Don't, don't shoot him now." It was it was that it was that surreal. So I run out. I'm jumping over cars to try to 
still off the exit from the shopping center where there's at. And so I'm fully exposed. And uh, you hear him saying, hey, there's there's a there's an FBI guy. I had my I had my FBI red jacket on. That was the only good thing that I had on. And I'm still trying to strap on my hardware. And the guy said, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, kill him, kill him. And, and then the guy said, no, don't, don't, don't shoot him. Don't, don't shoot him. No, no, it draw too much attention. And then my partners, they they also come up and they say, that's others, shoot them, you know. So it was all on tape, you know. And, you know, the guys, the trigger guys are saying, let's kill them all. Let's shoot them all. And the, the, and the main guy, you know, he kept level head. He said, no, we can't because if you do that, then that's going to get chaotic. And, you know, then we're going to get killed or, you know, we we'll draw a lot of attention. So it was a standoff. It was an old-fashioned standoff. And, uh, you know, we, myself, out in the open, you know, with, with guns drawn, tactical belt halfway on, halfway off. Uh, other officers, I me, mean, other other agents, you know, putting their stuff on, and then we were able to bring up a couple cars and seal off the seal off the exit point so they couldn't get out. So it, it was a, about a 10, 15 minute standoff where we had to, you know, convince them to put the guns down and you know and release the, the source and come out with the hands up. And so it was it was pretty it was pretty uh, it was pretty hair uh, uh, hair raising. Um, they had multiple automatic weapons, long guns. They had uh, a couple, a couple Uzis, I recall, a couple, uh, a couple of forty-fives, uh, and uh, one. I think one guy had a shotgun, sawed-off shotgun, I believe. But they, you know, they, they, they were going to kill. They came to kill the source, and uh, but we didn't know that. And then as we as we investigated it, we we realized that there was some there was some shenanigans going on that took place in the case, and the agent didn't inform supervisor, didn't inform the other agents what those shenanigans were, because had we known that. Then we just said no. We cannot have a meeting because it's not going to go well based on the stuff that you know the case agent allowed to happen. And and, and what it was, he was basically uh, fudging the numbers. Uh, the source was the uh, he 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 ran the safe house. And you know, say for example, the the, the DTO sent up 100 kilos of heroin. The source said, well, I you know uh, I didn't get that shipment. You know, and he, and one one kilo of heroin back then was about uh, about 100 thousand. So you so you take uh, well actually it wasn't that many it was I think in this case it was about ten keys of heroin and about 150 keys of cocaine and he said he didn't get shipped and he said he was taken he was taken off and unbeknown to the source the bad guys they had their they had their surveillance team watching the shipment from Columbia all the way to the safe house well he thought that they wasn't exactly so they knew he was lying so in other words he was ripping off. He was ripping off the bad guys, and they said, "Well, no, we, you know, and you know, you can't do that." All right. So we didn't know that the agent had sourced to, to to send that message back down to the monk to the bad guys, and uh, you know, and and to set that up because when you do that in cases when you want the team to make up the loss and big and send a bigger shipment. So typically, what would happen is if, if a group send five keys of heroin and it gets taken off the street to make up the money, they'll send ten keys next time. Or twenty keys to make up the loss, and so that's the game. Right. So he wasn't. So so let me just say, let me see. It wasn't like he was dirty. He was just sloppy. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 he wanted to. And he before we took before we took the you know the, the group down. Case agent got kind of greedy. You know he he, he wanted to uh, he wanted to look. He wanted to be a hero. Be a hero. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 he didn't report back to. He didn't tell everybody what was going on. Exactly. 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 Had we known those details. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Whereas, 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 whereas a more experienced agent would be like, you, you did what? Sit your ass down. You know, it's like, 
no, no. You know, the next meeting is to take these guys down because you know they they they're gonna know. You don't, you know, you know the drug guys know the game. You know, when they when they're sending some stuff through, you know, they got their eyes on it. You know, you made it. Yeah, from 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 start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, Carl, it was a, it was Friday afternoon, and you know, it was so many. I mean, it was a crowded it was a crowded venue, and all your training came into play right then and there. Right then and there, and then and and and, and it was chilling to hear the tape. Saying, you know, there's an FBI agent, you know, shooting, killing, killing, you know, and there's another FBI agent, killing, shooting, you know, and it's like, God dang, wow, man. So uh, from that, you know, we we were able to save. Uh, actually, actually, according to the source and in, in the tape, you know, corroborated, they actually put a forty-five in his mouth to blow blow his head off inside the van. And the guy said, "Don't kill him right now. Well, let's take him somewhere else." So you know, he was a dead man walking. Did he stay on the force after that, or what, what happened with him? No, that agent, uh, yeah, that agent, uh, not long after that, uh, you know, once you screw up like that, you know, trust your legitimacy on the team is pretty much null and void, and that's pretty much what happened. He he, he got pulled off. Go sit at that desk, that one over there in the corner, yeah. Right, yeah, he became the at-man guy, making sure everybody's leave request was put in and stuff like that. You know, you always need an at-man guy. And Don contested that. Go on and process that payroll. Don't sit over there somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. That source payment. Take it up. Take it up to the old man and get it approved. Right. Right. You do paper. Yeah. You, you come off the street. Exactly. So 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 he so he became marginalized and then eventually uh he got kicked out of uh he got kicked out of the agency. But uh but that that was that that was one probably one of my best stories, but I've got tons of them. Well look, I wanna hear them all. That was like that was like that was like super exciting, man. Seriously, like yeah, yeah. And I can speak of that one because it's it was about thirty years ago. So I, so the statute of limitations ran down. So I got to be careful about that. But yeah, it's uh, it, it it was interesting. Well, listen, I mean, always, always, you know, obviously, always, you know, we don't ever want to put anyone in a position that's compromising. You know what I'm saying? And obviously, names to protect the innocent, including yourselves and so forth. But it's like, man, you got to understand, we, you know, that's the whole point of this show. It's not only just for exciting stories like that, but just from, you know, another perspective of someone who is either black or brown or considered a minority, you know, like like no one understands what it's like on the other side and what those experiences are like, you know, whether it's you experiencing systemic racism on your way up, you know, and all the things you had to do to get to where you are as well, or even just knowing and believing and saying to someone, hey, we are on the inside fighting for you. And if you would just join the fight, then we might be in a better position because it's not a us against them situation. So it's it's always great to hear and have you share these, these um, experiences with us. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to close this one out, but you got to come back. You got to tell me you're going to come back. Absolutely. Uh, I'm at your uh, I'm at your disposal, Carl. You know, uh, not too many not too many people get a personal invite from Cole. You know, to, to be on a podcast. So it's my pleasure, man. And, and I want you to know, I want you to know, man. I'm one of your greatest fans, and I really appreciate your work in the industry. You know, you are a household name, and uh, any FBI agent, or any law enforcement officer or agent would be honored. You know, to sit with you. You know. And, and and have a one-on-one you uh you know the character you played and uh you know your your persona in the industry is 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 a very good positive persona and and i know from comedy side you know you you do some good work and uh you know your your uh 
your persona on, on Martin. In fact, by the way, I, I, you know, you know, Martin, you, you, uh, you, I'm sure you know, he lives out here. And I got a good friend that, that grew up with him and he tells me a lot of stories about Martin. In fact, he's my pastor. And uh, so <laughs> I feel real, <laughs> I feel really, you know, uh, honored to, to be able to talk with you because I, uh, you know, do have some insights about, you know, the, the game you ran with, uh, the, the work that you did. But man, let me tell you, keep on doing what you're doing. And, uh, you know, you know, we, we we have uh, we have great uh, expectations from you in the industry, and I know you and I know you you know embarked on some good stuff, and uh, just continue to you know to make us proud, man. Because everybody eyes are on you, and uh, we you know we're all pulling for you, man. So you're getting you're getting uh, you're getting black law enforcement officers to to come on your on your podcast, man. You shouldn't you should be having uh, standing room only, man, because uh, you're, you're you're such a you're such a treasure personality in our community so whatever we can do whatever i can do uh, i'm here for you so this is just part for me me doing my part and answering the call to where i think that this is a part of our second this is a part of the movement this is what's needed and you know as i said earlier you know you know like you said when when people realize that we're all here for a reason we're all here for a purpose you know and through comedy obviously there's healing you know um, through laughter but but at the same time we we are multi-purposeful. I said it. Um, <laughs> and, and this is a part of it, you know, um, and, I, and I, as I said, I, I take it seriously, the, the roles that I choose and the, 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 the imagery that, you know, even today, like I have a show um, that comes on tonight, actually, on Nickelodeon. It's called uh, Young Dylan. And, uh, you know, where I play a father and, you know, teaching, you know, you know, I'm a father of two, my nephew lives with me and I'm teaching them, you know, uh, good, good life lessons, you know what I mean? And, and, and stewarding and shepherding and these type of things. And, and so, you know, I don't take what you're saying, you know, I take what you're saying with a grain of salt, but I don't take it for granted, you know, that, that we have a, a purpose to serve, you know, and this is, this is just a part of this is just a part of it. So thank you for joining us, Willie. Thank you, thank you, thank you, man. All right, here ended the lesson uh, on the black arm of the law. Mr. Willie Knight. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.